The book of Esther begins in your pew Bible on page 410. And if it does not, it's because you have a large print pew Bible. We've discovered there were a few of those that had made their way into the pews. We've tried to remove those. So if you happen to find that Esther is not on page 410, please keep that Bible with you today and bring it out and give it to me after the service so that we can replace it with a regular Bible. Um, Also, for those of you watching online uh, for the first time in, what, two years now, uh, this cable is not sending power to my iPad. I'm at about 50%. I have no idea whether this whole sermon will make it out into the world. So if it goes away or if there's no second sermon today, you on the internet now know why. All right, so we're going to start with the history of this book a little bit by getting into the story itself. Again, page 410, just one verse one, chapter one, verse one, where it says this. Now in the days of Ahusuerus, the Ahusuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, that's verse two, when King Ahusuerus sat on his royal throne. First, who is this guy? Now, some of you may remember, we talked about Esther uh, two years ago, I think, when we went through the Old Testament, and I made the case that this guy Ahusuerus is the great and famous King Xerxes. Xerxes is the third famous king of the great ancient nation of Persia. If we back up to Daniel, which we looked at just a couple of months ago, he has a couple of visions about these nations that will rise and fall from the time of the exile to the time of the coming of Jesus. And there are four of them. The first is Babylon, which is the one that conquered Jerusalem and took the people captive up to their city, destroying the temple. And then 70 years was the promise from Jeremiah. After that, they would come back. But before they come back, Babylon will fall. And they fall as they are conquered by this nation called the Medes and the Persians. It really is a country that once was run by the Medes, but eventually becomes the Persians. And the name of the man who leads them at this time is Cyrus the Great. I should have mentioned Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That would have maybe helped drive that home. But So Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem, but then he under his sons, is shortly after conquered by Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, who unites an even greater empire than Nebuchadnezzar ruled over. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the golden head of that statue that Daniel sees, right? Cyrus is going to be the silver body, chest, and arms. His kingdom is bigger. His kingdom is wider. It exerts control over a much greater span. And yet there's something that makes it less than Babylon, And this may or may not be that King Nebuchadnezzar, I think, under Daniel comes to faith. There's some question about whether or not Cyrus comes to faith. In the Bible, Cyrus is mentioned by Isaiah as the servant of God. But even more important than that, in the book of Daniel, Cyrus is called by what is probably his his given name when he's a younger man before he becomes king and takes on a king name. Uh, He is called by the name Darius the Mede. And Darius the Mede, if you remember, is the one who loves Daniel and doesn't want him to be killed by the lions. And after the lions don't kill him, he makes a proclamation that everybody should worship Daniel's God. 
So that, that's Cyrus. Cyrus has a son who does take over Persia, but he's, he's not really like his father. And there's some fight between him and his brother. And then they both end up dying in what could be called an assassination attempt. It kind of depends on which historian you're listening to. But one of the leaders of Persia under Cyrus, whose name is also Darius, and that's where it can get a little confusing, uh, Darius, uh, not the me, Darius Histaphases, he ends up consolidating all the power and becoming the next great emperor of Persia. I said there were three, Cyrus, Darius, Darius will rule for a long time, make Persia run like clockwork. They called him the shopkeeper, right? The emperor who was a shopkeeper because he was down in his notes, making the trains run on time and all that kind of stuff. No trains, of course. Uh, His son is Xerxes, who inherits this then massive, massive kingdom, as well as where Xerxes is most famous for, a bit of a grudge. He inherits a grudge against the Greeks, The Greeks aren't a kingdom. The Greeks are a bunch of barbarian tribes up in the Northwest. But they've done some things to upset Darius to the point where Darius has appointed a man to stand at table every day and say, remember the Greeks to him, lest he forget that he needs to go punish them someday. So he he gets ready for that, but doesn't do it. Xerxes tries to make that happen. And so again, he is most famous for taking the great army of Persia up to attack Greece and running into the 300 Lacedaemonians, uh, the tre- 300 um, uh, Spartans at the hot gates of Thermopylae. If you know that story, you love it. If you don't, you'll have to go look it up sometime. But they lose. The Persians lose. And there's also a sea battle that happens. This sends them back to Persia with their tail between their legs. They will remain a great empire for some time. But this also will catalyze the unification of Greece from a bunch of tribes and city-states into one great people who will eventually be led by a guy named Alexander to go take care of their grudge against Persia for the attack at the hot gates, right? So that's who this is, all right? That's who this is. Has this happened yet? I don't know. But what I do know is this is a guy of incredible power, incredible wealth. He rules with such great control that he's able to go about for a half a year. It tells us in the rest of chapter one, he throws a party. It's not a feast, but it's a, it's a celebration that lasts half a year to show his whole kingdom, how nobody can stand against him. And then after this, he does throw a party. It's seven days long. He invites all of the nobles, all of the wealthy people, all the people that matter the most, the famous people to this great party for seven days. And after seven days, when the wine is flowing and everybody's feeling great, he says, now's the time to bring out my queen and show her off to all the world. And Queen Vashti says, I ain't coming. This, this causes some turmoil, right? And this guy rules everything except his house. Huh? And, and not only that, it... it causes some distress for all of the rulers within the area. So skim down to verse 17 and 18, and you can hear the concerns of the counselors of King Xerxes, Ahusserus. It says, verse 17 of chapter 1, For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahusserus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. 
This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. You think we have it kind of unique as Americans. It's new, this feminism thing, right? No, no, the battle of the sexes is quite old. And the curse of woman to be displeased with her position, that's written in Genesis 3. And the curse of man to ultimately not put up with it and subjugate her, that's also written in chapter 3 of Genesis. Okay, so without diving too far into that, the subjugation is what happens next. So that all the, the counselors get together, what shall we do? Here's an idea. Why don't we make a new law? Here's the new law. Queen Vashti can never come into the king's presence again. That's the new law. And the king's like, yep, let's do it. They do it. It kind of resolves the concern. All you ladies at home, if you despise your husbands, basically they can send you away. Nah. But then some time goes on and the king starts to realize being single isn't what he wanted to be. He kind of misses his queen. I, I assume she was not ugly. Uh, he, he wants her back. And so he, he's, he's moaning, he's moping, and his counselors come to him again and say, don't worry about it, dude. You rule the empire. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go find all the most beautiful girls from all the tribes and all the peoples. We'll bring them all in. We'll get them all pretty. We'll wash them so they don't smell like the tents they came from. We'll give them all sorts of makeup so they'll look the way they're supposed to look. We'll even give them a contest. Here's the contest. They can come and visit you for one night, bringing whatever they want to show you how great they are. And whichever one convinces you to be queen, that one you can pick as your queen. Beauty pageant. A little bit of a Cinderella thing going on here. You can see that, yeah? So um, enter Mordecai and Hadassah, who we know as Esther. This is in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Okay, chapter 2, page 411. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel. So this is like a major city of Persia, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. That's Jehoiachin, J1, the first son who was king of Jerusalem after Josiah, who then is taken away right away. Um, uh, I think I got that right. Correct me if I'm wrong, and we'll go on, but I'm pretty sure I got that right. So whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away. So he comes with that first round of exiles is the point. He's been there a long time. We're, we're at the end of that 70 years. We're past that 70 years now. He was bringing up, verse 7, Hadessa, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be at pains here to do kind of two things today. Uh, one is to tell the whole story and connect it to the rest of the Bible. And in this, then, you can kind of get an echo of Joseph in this story, all the way through it, how you have this really uh, pious, good, innocent character, person, 
and trusts in God, who ends up in a place that isn't necessarily ideal. Right? Joseph ends up in prison. Uh, he ends up as a slave. Esther's going to end up in a harem. A harem. So if she goes to the king for his one night and he says, yeah, you know, you were all right. It's not like she gets to go home. She gets to spend the rest of her life single in a room filled with other single women taken care of by men who have been castrated and are called eunuchs. That's the rest of her life. She gets fed. You know, she has some perfume, but she doesn't really get to be free. So it's not like this is like the best news ever. Although there is that Cinderella element to it where, well, maybe, maybe you're the one. So hear the Joseph narrative a little bit. This is going to come back later with the elevation of Mordecai. But the other thing I'm going to be at pains to do is to ask the question, where's Jesus? Because we know Jesus says that all scripture testifies to him. All scripture is written so that we might see how he is the incarnate son of God who has come into this earth as a man to die for our sins. And scholars are pretty clear, like this is one of the toughest books to find that in. The other books, there's all sorts of obvious pointing to Christ, pointing to the Messiah, pointing forward. So again, I'm going to be at pains here to do this a little bit today, because in one sense, there's just not a lot of Jesus in the book of Esther. But in another sense, there is. Jesus is Esther's God. And what you're going to see Esther be and do, what you're going to see Mordecai be and do is Christians. They're going to be people who trust in Jesus as their God to be a God of mercy. A God who puts them into situations they might not want to be in because he intends to bring them through those situations to something significantly better. He intends to allow this big picture of curse fall out of the land back to something that's better than you ever imagined into the promise to be something they experience in their personal lives. And for such a time as this, you heard it read already, so also is your life, no matter who you are. If you are a Christian, you know that you live in the time that you live in order to walk through it to the life of the world to come. And that is what this book is about, ultimately. Okay, so Esther, again, is taken into the, into the palace, uh, into the harem. And uh, let's see here, where do I want to pick up? Uh, we're not going to focus too much on what happens to her as a concubine, but there's an important little piece, uh, verse 15. Verse 15, where it says, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abishai, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And as the story goes, she'll win favor in the eyes of the king. But what an interesting little note. She's not the first girl to go in. They've been going in for days, weeks, months, girl after girl, night after night. And what are they taking with them? I don't know. Beer? You know, popcorn? Uh, Something. They're, They're trying to inspire the king to choose them. And Esther is incredibly wise. She asks the guy who works for the king and has known him for a very long time what to take. And when he says it, she doesn't argue with him. That's what she takes. We don't even know what it is, but we do know that she is chosen to be queen. He's very pleased with her. Of course, she is beautiful. 
He brings her out. He puts the crown on her head. Everything seems to be marvelous. It's like the story of Joseph. He's been put in charge of everything, although it's not quite over yet either. Okay, let's, uh, uh, let's look at chapter 3, uh, verse 1. There's one little thing that happens right before this where there is a conspiracy to kill the king that is unearthed by Mordecai himself. Mordecai is not in the king's presence, but he's able to send a message. It gets to the king. They stop the conspiracy. This kind of will be important a little bit later. But picking up then at chapter 3, verse 1, after these things, after that conspiracy, King Ahusserus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, we don't know why. We don't know why. Uh, Was it because of something to do with his religion? Uh, Possibly. It it doesn't say that, though. But this isn't going to go well for Mordecai. And again, I, I can't explain why he didn't bow down. But what I know is what happens next, verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Again, so there seems to be something that's wrong with this. It's not like it's wrong for a Jew to bow to a king. Why? We don't know but he won't do it. And now he's connecting it to his religion and his race. Verse five, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay his hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahusserus. All right, let me check my notes here for just a moment. Yes, the seeds of hatred. So the next place we're going to pick up is in chapter four, where we heard read before. What happens between now and then, though, is that Haman goes and hatches a plot, another conspiracy. Uh, He, again, does not want to go directly at Mordecai. He's not going to try to pick a fight with the one guy, but he knows this one guy belongs to a tribe. And so his plan is to get all of them killed. All of them, every single last Jew in the entire kingdom of Persia. That's all the Jews that there are, except for the few that are down in Jerusalem. And they're, frankly, in the kingdom of Persia, too. And so the way he does this is it's, it's kind of clever. He goes to King Xerxes and he basically says, I'll pay you a billion, kajillion, a million plus more money than you can imagine dollars. All this money you've paid me, you've elevated me to be your second. I have this huge income. I'll give it all back to you as long as on one day. Anybody who doesn't like these Jews can kill them. And the king's like, well, it's a lot of money. All right, sure thing. And he writes it into law. And they send it out to the whole empire. On this one day, if you got a beef with these people, you can take them out. And here's a little thing about the laws of the Persians. It's, it's kind of strange. It goes back to the Vashti thing, too. Like Even when the king regretted not being able to have the queen come back, the one thing the empire of Persia can't do is change what he said earlier. If he said, this is law, it's stuck. It's just stuck. It it can't be undone. 
And so this law is set in place that on this one day, there's going to be a celebration of bloodshed. And if you got a beef with a certain people group, you can go and take them out. Now, chapter four, we heard it read a little while ago. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out of the midst of the city and cried with a loud, bitter cry. He went to the entrance of the king's gate. And then verse three, in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, lamenting, many of them lying in sackcloth and ashes. As you heard read a few moments ago, Esther will try to console Mordecai. She sends out some clothing to him. She says, what's the matter? He takes the piece of paper that's been sent out saying all the Jews are allowed to be killed. He has that sent to her. He says, you got to go talk to the king. She actually sends back to him and says, I'm not sure I can do that. Because here's this other rule. One of these great ideas the king had, he made it a rule and now he can't take it back. Here's the rule. Anybody who goes into his presence, he has to pardon them from a punishable offense before they can talk, right? So to enter the king's presence is an offense punishable by murder. And if he does not immediately pardon you, then you are to be killed. Like whoever thought that was a great idea was having a rough day, but it became a law that was stuck from then on. And so she's like, I'm not going to go into the king's presence. He might just say, what's up with you and have me killed. And that's where this amazing, amazing text uh, at the end of chapter four, so middle of chapter four, we heard read uh, verse 12 and following. Uh, and this is, this is the text I want you to highlight, the text I want you to remember. It definitely gets overused in some Protestant Christian circles, but that's not a reason for us to ignore this text as being about you, about us, about the Christian church. Verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now let's hear Esther's response in verse 15, 16. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. All right. Go back to, again, uh, the end of verse 14. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, he is clearly referring to her being the queen of Persia. But what we need to see, I said, I'm going to be at pains to make this about Jesus. What does Jesus come preaching? He comes preaching a kingdom, a kingdom of repentance into the forgiveness of sins, a kingdom of an incarnate God who has become the king of men, a kingdom into which you have been bought. You didn't choose to join it. You were slaves at auction, held captive by the devil. He has bought you with a price. He has chosen you by his blood. He has washed you and made you clean. He has continued to feed you with heavenly bread. For such a time as this, you were born. You were chosen from before this earth was created to be set apart from the womb and called out of darkness and into his glorious light. That is incredibly hopeful truth. 
to take with you into every single moment of your life, no matter where it is, but right now is where you are. And as for the last two, three weeks, I have been banging the gong of we're in trouble. This country's not going well. Did you watch any of the Supreme Court stuff this week? I'll just quote two things. Senator asks the justice, a judge, she's already a judge, an American judge, asks the justice a question. Can you define a woman? Her answer, no. Another question, do you know when life begins? I don't know. If you can't see how bad that is, I can't help you. This is someone who wants to be a judge, a Supreme Court justice. Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge what a woman is? Who am I to judge when life begins? That's what your job is. We're in trouble as a country. That's just one little corner of what's going on. And you know what? Again, I don't care who you vote for. I do, but no, I don't. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to get you to pray. And that's what I've been banging the last couple of weeks is that we as a people, all of us need to take a posture of repentance and say, dear Jesus, before you do to us what was done to Sodom and Gomorrah, will you please spare us? We repent. And for such a time as this is why you're here. And then again, now notice, where is Jesus in the story? He's the one they're praying to. He's the one who's put them in the kingdom for this purpose. God did not put you here to destroy you. He put you here to save you. He does not crush you in order to see you be demolished. Whenever he presses down, it's order that he might purify you and cause you to rise up all the more. And again, the story of Esther is just one tale out of the history of him doing this for every Christian, wherever you are in your life, Old and New Testament. We all have our journey. We all have our demons. We all have our fight. We all have our struggle. We all have our death. And we all are saved by Jesus to lift up our heads and not wallow in the muck like the rest of the world that has no hope. So that's what Esther does. She goes in. She bows low. And the king receives her. He holds out his scepter to her. She touches the scepter. He says, what do you need? She says, I got to I got to a banquet I've prepared for you and for Haman. Can he come? He comes. And it's a banquet of wine. They do it almost right away. Uh, And he says at this banquet of wine, she's got a little wine in him. What do you need? I'll give you anything, anything. She says, I want to have another banquet tomorrow for you and Haman. Now, a couple things happen in the meantime, which is really quite fascinating. Uh, Haman goes out and he's ecstatic. He's like, wow, you know, not only am I number two, I got all this money. I'm going to kill the Jews. Now the queen has me coming to a special dinner with the king. This is solid stuff. Hey, honey, what should I do? She says, you should build a really big gallows so you can kill that guy Mordecai on it when the time comes. He says, that's cool. Let's build a big gallows today. I mean, all this happens, right? It's it's, it's pretty quick. But he starts work on the construction of this gallows. And he gets all ready to go to this dinner the next day. That night, the king has a nightmare. Uh, Here's a question. Are dreams from God? Uh, The answer is yes and no. All dreams are definitely created by God, but are they revelations of the truth you should trust implicitly? No, 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 no. Uh, What they are, though, is they're your own heart talking to you about what you know to be true. And so you should listen to what your heart tells you. It might be lying about it, but again, knowing your heart is a good thing. His dream is about 
the conspiracy that happened a while ago that Mordecai had unearthed. And he wakes up in the middle of the night and he, he can't really uh, make sense of what's going on. So he asks for that section of his history to be read to him. And they read that history to him. And he goes, did we ever help this guy Mordecai? Do we ever like pay him back? And they're like, no, 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 we didn't. And so the next morning, what happens right before this banquet is Mordecai gets brought in and paraded around in front of Haman. And he's given all this great glory and all this great amazing stuff. So Haman gets even angrier. Yeah. But he's going to go into the dinner with the queen. It's all prepared. They sit down. They bring in the food. I mean, imagine the best of the best of the best. This is like prime rib with au jus and some cream sauce from who knows where, right? I mean, it's just uh, fruits from all over the world and all this stuff. And the wine is great. And the king is loving it. And Haman's like, this is the life. And then the king says, all right, Esther, I love you so much. You're so amazing. Please tell me, what do you really want? Yeah. I know. I, you want to please me. That's great. What do you really want? And she says, well, there's this person who wants to have all of my family killed. And he's set up a way for it to happen. And I'd like you to stop it. And the king says, who? And she says, that guy. Now, can you feel the blood just drain from Haman's face? The king gets so angry, he gets up and leaves the table. He comes back later, and Haman's like stuttering, oh, I don't know what to say. Right? And he sends Haman out. Haman will end up hung from the very same gallows he made for Mordecai. Now the story kind of resolves from that climactic moment. Uh, he asks Esther what should be done. She says, make a new law. Remember, they can't take back the law. Right? They can't undo the law that all the Jews can be killed on this day. She said, make a law that all the Jews can fight back and kill whoever they want on that day too. No punishment if you kill your neighbor on that day if they try to kill you. Huh? That works out pretty well because those who hated the Jews in this empire at the time, they take advantage of the law even though the Jews are allowed to fight back. But the end of the day is that many of their enemies are destroyed. Now, again, we don't have time to go into all that text, but I do want to show you what happens at the very, very, very end of this, right? The elevation of Mordecai, chapter 10, page 416. This is after all the enemies of the Jews have been destroyed. Queen Esther's doing well. Haman is gone. It says, King Ahusuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts and of, of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahusuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to his people. Remember Joseph. Joseph becomes elevated to second in charge of all of Egypt, and because of his wisdom, all the people thrive. Here we have it again. So the echo of that story, that God puts those who are faithful in the right place at the right time for the sake of their neighbors. And that's, again, why you're here always. But also that elevation is an image of the ascension of Jesus Christ out of the grave, the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father, where? Under the Father, second in charge, and yet having all authority in heaven and earth, he is reigning over all things for the good of his people. That's you. And then you are the people who can appeal to him as king. You are his bride. You are Esther, 
free to go into his throne room. And he has not said, I will maybe kill you if you come in. He has always said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So again, for this fourth week in Lent, I hope this story gives you hope. No matter how you may think about what is going on in your personal life, in your family life, in your communal life, in your congregational life, in this state that we live in, or this country that we live in, or on this planet that we live on, you have the ear of the king. And for this very moment, he made you to be his, to live under him in innocence, and righteousness, and blessedness. Yes, we hope for the life of the world to come, but that life has begun already, right now, in your trust in Jesus Christ. And if I can make a really big hop all the way back to John chapter 6, he comes to you now in this bread and wine, not merely as bread and wine, but as his very flesh and blood, to impart to you the certainty of this promise, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, but he has bound you to himself once and for all eternity. In the name of Jesus, amen.